Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a Janus-like week in which the country looked both backwards and forwards. Backwards to the misdeeds of the Trump presidency and even farther all the way back to the attacks of 9-11. Forwards to the continuing fallout over the Supreme Court's abortion decision and the frustrating persistence of the big lie. Grand jury subpoenas of Trump's White House counsel and deputy counsel left no doubt that the Department of Justice is methodically investigating possible crimes by Trump and his circle. Meanwhile, a Washington-style scandal involving deleted texts from officials in several agencies opened a whole new front of possible misconduct by the former administration. President Biden approved a drone strike in Afghanistan that killed al-Qaeda's highest-ranking leader, whose involvement with the terrorist organization extends back to the World Trade Center attacks. But his presence in Afghanistan, one year after the U.S.'s withdrawal, revealed the ruling Taliban's failure to live up to its peace agreement promises. A resounding rejection of a constitutional amendment that could have paved the way for a sweeping abortion ban in Kansas, buoyed pro-choice forces, and suggested possible wind in the sails for Democrats in the midterms. That same evening, however, several big lie proponents won Republican primaries, attesting to the continued influence of the former president. To help us try to navigate the turbulent cross-currents of these national and international issues, we have a fantastic group of expert commentators, all returning guests to Talking Feds. And they are Asha Rangappa, the Assistant Dean and Senior Lecturer at Yale University's Jackson School of Global Affairs, where she also teaches national security law and related courses. Previously, Asha served as a special agent in the FBI, where she specialized in counterintelligence investigations. She is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, an editor for Just Security, and a frequent columnist in national publications and a regular guest on this show, I'm really pleased to say. Asha, thanks so much for returning. Thanks for having me. Juliet Kayyem a national security analyst at CNN and the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she is faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. She served as President Obama's assistant secretary for intergovernmental affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She's the author of the book, Security Mom and... The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters, which we featured on a recent Talking Books episode, where we didn't cover, so I should mention now, her prolific surfing abilities that she just exercised this morning. Welcome back, as always, Juliet Kayyem. There will be no pictures, I'll just say that. (laughs) Last time you came straight from the surf. Amazing. And finally... Aaron Burnett, the anchor of Aaron Burnett Out Front, which airs, of course, as everyone knows, on CNN, where she also serves as chief business and economics correspondent. Her extensive news coverage experience includes moderating the 2020 CNN New York Times presidential primary debate. 
Erin previously hosted two flagship shows for CNBC, and she's reported from around the world, including Afghanistan of particular relevance today, Iran, Cuba, and across Africa and Asia. And her national security coverage includes a documentary, The Truth About Benghazi. Erin Burnett, thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds. Awesome. All right. Let's start with the flurry of legal troubles for the former president. So there are increasing signs that the Department of Justice is aggressively focusing on his possible criminal conduct. I'd say the biggest recent development this week, though there have been several, were the subpoenas for Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Deputy White House counsel Pat Philbin. How big a deal are the subpoenas in the overall scheme of things? It's a big deal. I mean, finally, finally, we are seeing DOJ actually showing some interest in communications that were happening directly with Trump, as opposed to all of these peripheral events that are happening. And as we already know from the January 6th hearings, Cipollone in particular, I think, has a lot to add in terms of what the president was being advised, how much he knew about the legality and illegality of his actions as well as what kind of advanced knowledge and planning he had about what was about to unfold. So it's really critical. I would be interested in Aaron and Juliet's thoughts on this. My sense is from the January 6th hearings, he was pretty straightforward and forthcoming. I kind of read it as he just wants to get this out and be done. I mean, like, you know, he realizes and he realized it at the time when he said, we're going to be charged with every crime imaginable. Effing crime imaginable, I think he said. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So he understands exactly why he is where he is. And I think as a lawyer, he also knows that he's got to just tell the truth. I think it'll be interesting to see whether he tries to assert these privilege claims. I don't think they will go anywhere. And Harry, you know, we've had these discussions offline about what the point is of them, because it really seems like it comes down to if he were to do that, that it's sort of an act of self-preservation as opposed to really trying to protect the office of the presidency or assert something that actually has a strong legal basis. So we'll see if he tries to go that route. And, And again, I don't think in this particular setting, in a grand jury criminal subpoena, that those claims are going to go anywhere because it's just a very different context and there's case law in a way that is very different than the separation of powers tug of war that might happen between the executive branch and Congress. Just to put a finer point on that, this really isn't. It's got the feel of it because it's like these other disputes. It's not a separation of powers issue. It's the executive branch wanting to know about possible criminal conduct in the executive branch. And The law is really clear. As you say, this happened with Clinton and Deputy White House Counsel Bruce Lindsay. The courts have been very clear. But I think it will be very interesting. It's sort of who he wants to be now in history. He's a sort of Washington Republican, not a crazy Trumpist, even more so that's the case with Philbin. And he could fight it tooth and nail and try to drag it out, as certainly Trump would, until 2024 and hope for a Republican. But I kind of agree with you. He was candid to a point, but then really clammed up in front of the January 6th committee, and they didn't have the time to push back. But DOJ won't stand for that. And will he really try to fight it tooth and nail and go down as kind of a Trump defender? 
where, you know, a lot of people who know him, I mean, you know, he's got a practice, right? He's got clients. He wants to continue that. So he does want to go by the letter of law from everything we hear from people close to him, even people who really disagree with the role he took in the Trump administration. There's a lot of respect for him as a lawyer, as a person. So he kind of goes in, I guess, for lack of a better word, with that goodwill and expectation, it seems like. Yeah, I agree. But you make two points and they cut in different directions. He doesn't want future clients to think he'll too easily give up the goods. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to be the nasty obstructionist. And I think Philbin hasn't been focused on enough here because he is really on the straight and narrow. Remember, he shows up in the whole Ashcroft, Comey, hospital bedside drama on the good guy side. And he has also a huge reputation for integrity. And I think they basically want to tell the story without seeming too eager to do it. I think that's right. I mean, if, if you're Mark Meadows, you've got to be incredibly worried at this stage, yeah, just because he what we've heard from, from other witnesses. Yeah. And I look at this as I've been on before, sort of the interplay of how the legal fight, the January 6th committee, and whatever's happening out in the real world, how they all play into sort of this counter-radicalization, counter-insurgency that has to be addressed because we're still in it. And I think Tuesday's elections results suggest that. You don't have a single headline, but you definitely don't have it's all Trump or it's not Trump. We're in a fight, and and I think the general is going to show sort of what we have. But I had long thought that this process of the combination of whatever DOJ was doing with the sort of more public nature of the January 6th committee was also being used as a way to provide a sort of off-ramping narrative. And you may not be the first off the Trump train, but you don't want to be the last. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what the White House counsel subpoenas suggest is they know so much more. And if you know something you better come forward. And the January 6th committee is hinting at that. Even in August, when they're not meeting, they keep saying, we're getting more people coming forward. If you haven't come forward, you've got to wonder who that is. And from a counterinsurgency play, I know Twitter wants decisive action, right? Trump is yeah. gone, never to be spoken of again. And I think what we have to do is just look at it as like, is he getting stronger or weaker through this process? And I think there's a lot of signs, they're not conclusive, that while he has a hold on the party, at least as it goes to violence and radicalization, the groups are turning against each other, they're disseminated, they can't raise money, he can't fill a room. I mean, I'm a lawyer, and so I do want, you know, the criminal thing, but like, I, I think I've come to terms, like if he dies rich in Palm Beach with like his disgusting people around him. I'm sort of fine with that as long as he doesn't run again. And to Juliet's point, I think that what she's saying is really important because I think we're such a law and order kind of society where like we love to see people in orange jumpsuits. To us, that's the only form of accountability that matters. And I think it is a type of accountability that's really important. But I think we don't want to underestimate the power and importance of what the January 6th committee has achieved. Yeah. Because I don't think standing alone, DOJ could have done what it has precisely because they don't have the scope and the ability to present the kind of evidence that the House has been able yeah. to do. It would have been inadmissible. It would have been irrelevant yeah. to whatever they're charging. And this is like a huge narrative that I think matters in a very, very important practical way 
regardless of what happens in the criminal context. You know, what's really interesting as you guys are drawing this distinction between how this ends up and then the whole criminal procedure part, Harry, you know, Ty Cobb, who obviously was you know Trump's defense attorney during Mueller. Yeah. He surprisingly thinks that there's a lot of evidence for criminal charges. But what he does think the committee's achieved, to Asha's point, is he doesn't understand kind of why Congress hasn't already moved ahead on what he feels the committee has proved in all these hearings, which is, you know, aid and comfort to the insurrectionists in the 14th Amendment, I guess, Article 3. So he thinks that if they would move forward on that, they could disqualify Trump from office forever. And he thinks they've more than established the ability to do that. And that would be totally separate even from any legal charges that the DOJ may or may not pursue. I just think we need to think about what is success, right? So success may be him in an orange jumpsuit or whatever. And people who are pushing for that, I was like, you know, you might fail. This may not happen. That's a big deal to put a former president around bars and that's going to be years away and whatever. There's a whole bunch of pieces before that. But if success can be measured in his isolation, his denigration, his humiliation, his the, the ties to violence and everything, that's actually success because the alternative is really, really bad. And I think you're starting to see this in independent polling, even in Republican voting. And then you add on all the other stuff that's going on, whether it's abortion or whatever else. Like, yeah, he can be isolated. And I often think we have a tendency to think of him as Voldemort, right? Like, because like nothing got him. But eventually Voldemort did die or was something happened to him, but he eventually ended. And so maybe hopefully we'll do that. Yeah, it's the Juliet Kayyem maxim, take the win. Take the win. And of course, he took it on the chin for many quarters, and he continues to, each of which provides a measure of accountability and a measure of retribution, right? He's now got to stand for depositions, it looks like, in New York with the New York AG civil suit. He's going to have to face a lot of questions anyway about things he's never revealed before. The civil suits by the Congress people and the police officers are now going forward. That could be both big financial pitfall and also reveal information. On the other hand, just this week, as you mentioned, we had candidates and several, you know, sort of big lie folks. By the way, on Ty Cobb, I just want to say as one who watches too much cable TV, like most of us. Kudos to you, Aaron, for that piece with yeah. Larry Tribe that actually in-depth, 12-minute, you know, you watch sort of the whole day's news. And by nature, everyone digs as deep. And that was really a change of pace I thought was hugely effective. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, 12 minutes was a long time. But having talked to each of them and put them on, I realized, you know, even when we put someone on again, you you kind of refresh your memory. Wait, where were they exactly on this point? Yeah, where were yeah. they on this charge? You know, and then putting them together, it was literally like doing the Venn diagram. Yeah. And realizing they agreed on almost everything. Yeah. Tribe yeah. goes a little bit further on sedition and full insurrection, but Cobb is not far behind. I thought that was pretty amazing. I want to just double back quickly to a point that Asha made at the very beginning which was in praising the subpoenas, you said, finally, and they're getting off the dime, et cetera, without revisiting that debate, because DOJ says, look, we've been doing more, but we can't publicize it. And it's the witnesses being in the grand jury who then come out and blab, and that's how we know. But is that storyline, would you say, now put to rest? So is there any remaining reason to doubt that Trump really is now directly in the crosshairs. It's deadly serious on DOJ's part. And the concerns about getting off the dime late, whatever they might have been, are now in the past. 
Well, it's yes and, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, they have him in the crosshairs and they got started really late. Uh-huh. Because I think that when you see Mark Short, Greg Jacob, Pat Cipollone, like they're, as far as I can tell, still in the early stages. Like he's not going to be indicted tomorrow. They're gathering the information, you know, presumably interviewing them beforehand before they go into the grand jury. But like this should have been done a year ago, frankly. You tell me, Harry, but if I was imagining how this investigation would go, I would have looked at the people around Trump while their recollections were fresh. Yeah. So that you can preserve that evidence, so you can get their stories. And they remember, I mean, it's now 18 months later and they're offering up what they know. Of course, they've been interviewed by the committee, so you have that. But I don't know what they were doing for a year. And I have some serious concerns because... There's a theory that's been floated, and by reputable people, Preet Bharara was interviewing Carol Lenig and other prosecutors who have suggested that Merrick Garland decided from the get-go that he just wasn't going to go after Trump, and so why bother going down this unless the other trails led to him or something? And to me, that's a dereliction of duty. You don't know what you're going to find until you investigate. The decision to prosecute is very different than the decision to investigate. Of course, when you gather all the evidence, you may look at it, you may decide you're not going to bring charges either for sufficiency of evidence or for the kind of reasons that Juliet mentioned. This is just going to create all kinds of chaos. But that doesn't mean you can't gather the evidence. And I mean, even Mueller knew that he was bound by this DOJ policy of not indicting a sitting president, that that's probably not going to be the outcome of him when it came to Trump. That didn't stop him from gathering the evidence and even says in the Mueller report, we did this to preserve evidence while it was still available and memories were fresh. So I don't understand what the delay was to this day. I don't know if Juliet has a theory about that. No, no. I haven't practiced in so long and I never was a criminal attorney. So there was like a debate amongst the lawyers about too slow. He's probably doing something. But I take your point about preserving the evidence because even for those of us who sort of follow along, I I tend to forget like major pieces. This was true of the Mueller report as well. When you finally read it, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about the pinging signals to the bank (laughs) storyline. But I have no idea. Is there a hope that some sort of other resolution comes into play either a political one, which certain charges are dropped, not criminal, but civil charges, or the January 6th committee. I don't know. I don't know what deal could be made that he stays off the ballot. I tend to be sort of singular on that. You just want him out, right. The way the Republican Party is now, if you have a fractured primary, which is how these crazy secretaries of state got in, it was the fractured primaries because the alleged GOP will not take responsibility and tell people to get out of the freaking race, put one person who can win. So don't tell me this is the Democrats' fault for picking someone else. I'm going on a tangent, but like, we know how to beat these people. You don't have fractured primaries. The GOP has every capacity to control this if it was willing to. Let me bring it back and make a couple prosecutors' points. First, I'll just say from having been there and worked pretty closely with Merrick Garland, 
I don't credit the supposition that it's all been in the tank from the start and he's just going to be looking for a way to fold his cars at the end. You just don't do the kind of investigation he's doing now if that's what you're planning. But back to your point about delay. Yeah, preservation of evidence, but that's secondary now. The big point, and it's hard to know how they respond to it, is the normal justice playbook is possibly going to hit a brick wall in November 2024 if a Republican president is elected. And the timeline now, kind of however you slice it, if you indicted him tomorrow, it would be a year or more until he went to trial. We're at least in the shadow. But I'll just say one countervailing point I've been thinking to date They've got to do this by getting somebody big to turn. They need to be going hard on Meadows, in particular on Giuliani. But Cipollone and Philbin, they're almost like our modern day equivalent of the White House tapes. They were there for everything. And there are scenarios where you can build a case against Trump with only them and then not have to have the sort of lucky break of somebody cooperating. All right. There's a whole other scandal that's gone from unknown to a rapid boil in just a few weeks, namely the deletion of these text messages related to January 6th. We now have multiple agencies and then weird squirreliness by the inspectors general in each. So, Asha, you wrote the sheer preposterousness of this actually having happened, this being some innocent deletion of these emails, could only be more cartoonish if the January 6th committee ultimately discovers that the person responsible is the Secret Service caretaker who's been running around the agency wearing a ghost costume. You've been in agencies, Juliet, you've been, I've been. Can you explain why this is so outlandish to think it's an innocent concatenation of events? When I exited government, I had an exit interview. I hand over things. I'm escorted out of the agency, an agency that I was a senior member of, right? They're not messing around. You're a ghost. They owned you. Yeah, they owned you. And exactly, now you're a ghost. So the idea that across the Secret Service, DHS, so Secret Service is a component of DHS, that it only hits S1 and S2, that's the secretary and the deputy secretary, that it only hits S1 and S2 who miraculously don't have the text, then over to DOD. It's preposterous, but I sort of want to be like, do you think that we're idiots? Like when the Secret Service first came up with their excuse, I was out there saying, this is so not going to hold. And I advised companies on crisis management. I was like, get ahead of this because we all know what's about to happen. Of course, they didn't get ahead of it. You've got a legacy Secret Service head. You've got the IG who has legacy problems. We just learned from the Washington Post. He's lied before. He's a Trump person. He's hiding things. I don't get the Biden administration on this issue. Very supportive of the Biden administration. Why wasn't he fired? I don't understand. That Literally, I looked at the statute. Like, Asha, you made me a lawyer again. Like, I was like, oh, I should look at the statute. For cause, right? You can't be an IG and kill someone. You <laughs> could get rid of them that way. So all the protections that we want IGs to have, he satisfied none of them. Disclosure, honesty, integrity, expertise, all of them. I do not get it. This one, I do not get because Congress wants him to be fired or at least sidelined. January 6th committee wants him to be fired or at least sidelined. You can do this. This is like an easy one. And you get someone else in or you get, honestly, you get DOJ or Treasury, which used to oversee the Secret Service in. 
they think we're stupid. Like this is ridiculous. And just one more thing on the secretary and deputy secretary. Who say, by the way, we didn't write anything. We gave them over and yeah. we don't know what happened. Then. And by the way, acting, acting secretary. Acting secretary, yeah. legally acting. Let me just say one thing about it. So this is how I envision January 5th and 6th are going over. The Secret Service head reports to the secretary. The deputy secretary is in the chain of command because he oversees the components. So most people are not picking up on this. So a, a text like a Secret Service head who's saying, what the hell he wants to go to the Capitol. My guys are saying, I need some counsel, would go to the deputy secretary and the secretary. So this totally makes sense to me, is that the Secret Service head was looking for, like, an adult. He was looking for an adult, and no one's playing it. And by the way, it's really unclear who was in the legal department during this whole time. Yeah. Because... As I write in that piece that you cited from Harry, typically a preservation hold goes through the general counsel's office. They identify the people who might have these kinds of documents or information. They tell you not to delete anything and you comply. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Trump had fired the general counsel. He's not replaced until after Biden comes into office by Jonathan Meyer. I don't know who's running the legal department ship while all of this craziness is going on. And it's not just that there are three agencies, but there are three agencies, each of whom we have reason to believe have really important evidence about January 6th. Trump calls up the secretary and badgers him to seize the voting machines. And obviously the Secret Service figures in the whole brouhaha on the 6th, etc. Aaron, I wonder what's your journalistic instinct yeah. here. It feels to me like this is metastasizing quickly. Is this going to continue to expand? And what's got to happen to get to the bottom of it? Well, I think that when the Defense Department got added to it, that gave it some real umph for sure. I think the first set of defense that came out from the Secret Service, right, which was that basically individual agents were in charge of updating their phones and they didn't do so, that was initially a little hard for people to understand whether that would be true or not true. Because obviously a lot of people in their jobs can understand that excuse. When you explain how things are different, when you're working for the federal government, you're, when you're working for the Secret Service, it starts to take on a different tone and tenor. But I think at first, the story moved a little bit more slowly, as you may have noticed, because there was a real lack of clarity about what really happened at Secret Service. And did they really hand them all over? And then there was a mistake. But then as it's metastasized, it's getting bigger. When you think about what's at stake here, Depending on what actually happened, and if you're looking across, you, as you point out, multiple agencies, if there was any sort of a conspiracy, I mean, obviously what you're looking at with destruction of evidence in this kind of case would be what? I mean, 20 years in prison or something up to that. I yeah. mean, it is an incredibly serious thing to even be talking about. I mean, it's big stuff. And basically, it seems to me it's very mysterious what happened, but it's pretty simple what has to occur now. You just have to get them under oath and hear it all. And that's really DOJ's purview. It seems to me they already have more than enough to open an investigation on just what you're talking about, Aaron, on obstruction. And yeah, this could be as sinister as, well, I was going to say as it gets, but we've been dealing with a lot of sinister conduct. It is time for our sidebar feature. Today, we're going to be explaining how international sanctions under U.S. law, most pertinently the current ones against Russia for its war of aggression in Ukraine, operate. And to do so, really pleased to welcome Jeff Perry. 
an actor with a wealth of experience in television, movies, and stage. He is best known for his roles as Richard Kadmiski in My So-Called Life, Thatcher Gray in Gray's Anatomy, Cyrus Bean in Scandal, and Inspector Harvey Leake in Nash Bridges. So I give you Jeff Perry on international sanctions under U.S. law. How do international sanctions work under U.S. law? Early in Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine, U.S. and European leaders announced sweeping sanctions on Russia, President Vladimir Putin, and various oligarchs. The sanctions effectively deprived the sanctioned parties of any use of billions of dollars in assets. Can the United States, and in particular the President, simply do that without at least some oversight by, say, a court? The short answer is yes. The sanctions against Russia and those imposed in similar instances are considered exercises of the President's emergency powers. While the sanctions appear to be an exercise of mere presidential discretion, in fact, they have been approved at least in the abstract by Congress. The 1977 International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IPA, authorizes the President to define a situation in the world as a national emergency, which triggers the ability to impose sanctions. The law requires the threat to national security to be unusual and extraordinary. Nevertheless, various presidents have applied it to a wide range of conduct by foreign regimes, everything from human rights violations in Venezuela to the ostensible development of weapons of mass destruction in Iran. Moreover, while the determinations in theory are supposed to be short-lived, the president can renew them annually by new executive order, and every president has renewed every single finding of emergency annually. Turning to Russia, President Obama invoked the IPA after the Crimea incursion in 2014. The emergency remains in effect and permits the administration to designate particular individuals as subject to sanction. That fact, in turn, justifies a panoply of sanctions on identified individuals' money and property. For example, the president or his delegated representative can order a bank to freeze accounts belonging to a sanctioned individual and ignore that person's request to withdraw her own money. Importantly, the United States doesn't take title to sanctioned bank assets or real property. It just prevents the sanctioned individual from having any beneficial use of them. In practice, and from the standpoint of the sanctioned individual, there's no difference. But unlike, for example, asset forfeiture, in which the government takes title to the forfeited property, there's no need to go to a court to impose sanctions. There are limited avenues for a sanctioned individual to challenge sanctions on real property. She could send a lawyer specifically to appear. But the government can use classified information to justify the sanction. And in practice, it's extremely difficult to get a court to reverse a sanctions order. The bottom line is that the combination of general congressional authorization and the existing executive orders produce a formidable array of punishing sanctions 
without the need to run them by a court. For Talking Feds, I'm Jeff Perry. Thank you very much, Jeff Perry. Jeff's new show, Alaska Daily, premieres on ABC in October. Let me just take a second here to put in a quick tribute to two Titanic figures from the world of sports who died this week. Vin Scully, the preeminent and eternal voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and Bill Russell, the Celtics center who was the centerpiece of the Celtics dynasty that won 11 NBA championships during his 13-year career as player and coach. Both Scully and Russell are fantastic figures for their excellence in their profession, but more than that, for their originality and consistent focus on what matters most. Scully letting the game do the talking, and Bill Russell obviously on figuring out a way to win year after year. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, but wine canosaurs have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor. Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass But if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well-suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans. But bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine in a box. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So let's go overseas. Last week, about a year since the U.S.'s calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the U.S. launched a drone strike that killed the notorious terrorist Ayman al-Zawahiri. So let's start with the basics. We've been targeting him for years, including two previous botched efforts. Who is Zawahiri and why was the U.S. so determined to target him? So I actually, I'm so glad you asked this first question because he was not a mastermind of September 11th. So he's horrible, but like we, we got to get our narrative straight. He's not even a deputy around September 11th. He rises as, of course, the leadership gets eviscerated in the war in Afghanistan, not made for prime time in the sense like he's not an outgoing person. He's not known to have adherents that fall at their knees for him. He is a quiet, ruthless, evil 
horrible human being who rises up through Al-Qaeda because of both the deaths of others and he becomes very close with bin Laden in those years. We lose track of him at various moments. Where is he? We go after him and miss. Fast forward. I think this is a three-part story, so I'll just cut to the chase of how I look at this. I do think there's something to decapitating, eliminating even the spiritual leader of a terrorist organization 20 years later responsible for 3,000 American deaths. I think wherever he was in the pecking order, he chose the role he's in. And and to the extent that the operational control of al-Qaeda is still in question, or even the relationship with the Taliban, this is good. And we should take the win. Number (laughs) two is, I think, it was a real win for the Biden administration a year after their exit was so messy and complicated, and we can debate that another time. But the president decided to exit. The Taliban comes in. And in the world I'm in of counterterrorism and homeland security, they say our capabilities will be relatively the same because we'll have what they call over-the-horizon capabilities. That's just simply you don't need boots on the ground. It's human intelligence. It's drones. What we can do even if we're not working with the Taliban directly. Yeah, And that seems to be awesome. I mean, when you get the details of what they did, Zawahiri was sort of an idiot because he had habits. They got him because he always went to the balcony at the same time. I'm not feeling sorry for him. The third, though, is I do think this is a story actually more about the Taliban and that the importance of the kill was because the agreement, agreement in quotes, said that they would not harbor terrorists. He's in Kabul. Like, you're not, that's not even harboring, that's hosting. Yeah. I mean, he's in the area, as I gather, where the government officials live and the Ritzy, right. Yeah. Like, it's like ridiculous. (laughs) But I think it gives the US much more leverage in trying to. To continue its isolation of the Taliban as it tries to market itself as the new Afghanistan. And we also do have interest there, Stu. We have American prisoner. We have others that we want to get out. So I think, you know, we have a bargaining chip. That's good. Again, the win. All right. So we get a bullish view then of the actual idea of targeted killing. It was really impressively surgical, but is it legally uncontroversial to kill someone from halfway around the world like that? And what sort of oversight is there about it? Asha, I know you've done some thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I teach every year in my national security law class, and it's a very complicated arena. And I think the killing of someone like Zawahiri kind of obscures a lot of the problematic aspects because they're not all Zawahiris. That's a really good point because we're really bullish, like, How many did Obama do? You know, right? Yes, it increased exponentially under Obama. And even Trump went beyond the legal authorizations to order a strike on Soleimani, which became very problematic for a number of reasons. But, you know, for example, Harry, the two botched attempts that you mentioned before killed 76 children and 29 adults. And so, you know, in addition to that collateral damage, there's also issues about violating other countries' sovereignty. And basically, the legal basis here rests on two primary authorities. One domestically is the AUMF, which has been in place since 2001. That old chestnut, it's still still doing work. And then the second, the international law principle of preemptive self-defense and this idea that if you are under imminent attack, The U.S. justifies it under international law by saying we have to attack. And I think when you look at Zawahiri, both of these, you're kind of stretching the bounds of both of these concepts, right? We're 21 years later. Are we really under imminent threat if we've withdrawn all our troops from there? So again, this is a success. He's a bad dude, no doubt. But I think we also need to look at 
what are we using to justify this and how can it be abused under the wrong yeah. authority? Because there's also no oversight, unlike something like even FISA, which is just like electronic surveillance, which has judicial oversight, congressional oversight. We just kind of let the executive branch do whatever the hell they want and have been doing this since the Bush administration. And like I said, that has possible bad repercussions, including national security implications to us, as we saw with the Soleimani strike. And just to put the lawyer's point on it with what exactly we're saying, because we've been advancing it for many years and there's really no way to test it, but it's imminent. Why is there an imminent threat from him? We've interpreted that to say, if we may not get another shot at him ever, that somehow stands in for or is the functional equivalent or even qualifies for imminence. And you just have to state that argument to see that it's assailable. Okay, Aaron... I wanted to ask you about what now happens with the Biden administration. As Juliet points out, they promised in one fashion or another that they wouldn't be harboring uh, terrorists. Now, after taking him out, is Biden going to need to do more? Is he going to have to respond against the Taliban government in some way? And what options does he have? This is the real complicated point. I mean, you talk about the neighborhood where this happened in, in Sharpur. I mean, this is where journalists we had all probably broadcast from at some point. You would have been broadcasting at some point from a villa that was in this area, right? At one point it was poppy magnets or whatever you want to call them. And, and now a lot of Taliban officials. So it's not a question of whether they knew he was there. They knew he was there. He was welcome and they had him there. And that that is a reality. So the Biden administration has to deal with that. But even like this week, you know, Chris Ray just testifying before Congress saying that is higher concern about terror attacks on U.S. soil and the aftermath of this, despite the great degradation of Al Qaeda, but specifically referring to growing intelligence gaps because of U.S. forces not being there. So obviously, this is a huge achievement for intelligence, and there's no other way to look at it, right? Yeah. Stunning achievement, but that they are seeing these these huge intelligence gaps and networks that you may have had when you're no longer with them all the time become a lot harder to maintain. So they have that sort of operational challenge that they're actually openly talking about facing. In addition to, you know, Juliet referring to the Doha agreement, right? This huge foreign policy challenge that they have. What was interesting is when this was announced, the Taliban was the first to jump out and say, oh, we confirm. Yeah. We know it was him, right? As if they wanted to sort of get ahead of the news and somehow look like they were cooperating. And the of, U.S. has violated our sovereignty. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. You know, sort of, don't worry, you don't need DNA. We, we know you got him. So there is something being played out here in the background. Let's take this as a closeout question. And as we're talking, it's striking me, you three have very broad, but also diverse experience, including, Aaron, all the time you spent reporting in Afghanistan. So Biden comes right out and says, Americans are safer today. On balance, does it make Americans safer, as Biden proclaimed? I don't think any of us know of like, was there imminent planning? Yeah. I think that's hard. And also, will this killing actually mobilize people to retaliate? Yeah. That's a question you always hear. Oh, now they're really mad. But these are kind of implacable enemies who want to do everything they can. What do you, with your experience, take as the sort of practical likelihood that something like this will eventuate in a reprisal? I mean, don't we really have people here who can't get any nastier. Well, I mean, the UN, someone was referencing the other day, says that the number of Al-Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan has doubled since the Taliban took over last summer. Juliet was giving such great context about Zawakri and who he is anyway. 
that's not going to stop. No. Right. right. Whether safe volatile or whomever it is ends up running it. And then there's all the other obviously interrelated and, and non-related terrorist organizations. But to your point, it's, it's an implacable foe. And in a sense, maybe it goes back to what Juliet said, right? You take the win that the United States does not forget. And justice deferred is not justice denied. Yeah. And that may be all you really know you can say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's harder with each of these things for them to reform. I mean, part of it is back to how do you measure success? Is there a capability to plan something very, very organized, you know, multifaceted? 9-11 would be very, very hard. But the July 7th type event or Paris that you saw with ISIS, July 7th, the London attacks, a lesser terrorist attack is also a success, right? So, I mean, it's harder for them to organize, harder for them to communicate, and harder for them to recruit. I'm very careful about what I call Trump. You can call him whatever you want. But this is where I think it's very consistent with what I've been writing about Trump and de-radicalization. In the history of terror organizations, and I won't call what's happening here terrorism, just sort of violent organizations, they require certain things. They require, of course, leadership. They require money, which is harder to do. And they require the narrative of the win. So ISIS grows as it's capturing land and begins to fall apart as the land is captured back. doesn't matter who's captured it back, if it's the Syrians, the Russians, or the U.S. And so winning becomes a narrative. And that's what Trump really always had. And now moving forward, once again, I'm just saying there's theories of radicalization that apply to whatever group you're talking about. And I think that that's true. It's just hard to get people to kill themselves. I mean, I know there seems to be an infinite number of them, but to kill themselves for a losing cause, they need a narrative of the win. And this was a loss for them. Yeah, that's a really good point. They seem inhuman to us, but there has to have some human motivations. I mean, presumably, well, we're told he was kind of a figurehead by now, 71 years old. But but this notion, Aaron's point of, look, we're not going to forget if you do this, it might be 5, 10, 15 years, but you won't live out your natural life. If that is a meaningless kind of disincentive, then take the win. What world are we in? Okay, I wanted to spend a few minutes anyway back stateside with the fallout from the Supreme Court's Mm. overruling of Roe versus Wade, which is, if anything, growing more fevered. So two important developments this week. The Department of Justice sued Idaho, which is on the verge of enacting an extremely severe near total ban of abortions, and they're going to, you know, put doctors in jail, et cetera. Let's get back to that just briefly at the end. But I want to focus a bit on Kansas, where voters overwhelmingly rejected a constitutional amendment that could have paved the way for basically, again, a total abolition. Kansas, very red state. This was the first, I think, plebiscite on abortion rights since Dobbs, and it came in this very conservative state. Can it be dismissed as a fluke or must it be taken as a harbinger? of political sentiment in the country. Here, you know what's really interesting on this front? Everyone saw this story as a wow story, and they were right. But in one sense, we were all wrong. The polling shows, at least our most recent poll, that 63% of Americans disproved of SCOTUS striking down Roe v. Wade, right? So in a sense, the polls were already telling us where the American public was, regardless of the variance, but that's the number. And the number in Kansas came out to just under 60%, saying exactly what the poll said 63% of American voters did. So in that sense, Kansas is consistent with what we should have expected. But then obviously you have to layer in, as you point out, they do have a Democratic governor. 
but you haven't had a Democratic senator from Kansas, I don't believe, since 1932. Mm-hmm. I think they haven't voted Democratic for president since 1964. So in that sense, it is significant, right, that that was able to happen there. And it is on the ballot, similar moves in other states. Obviously, California is not a swing state in any way, but, you know, Montana, Kentucky, Vermont all have similar things coming up for the midterm. So there is that sort of what this will mean for for turnout and ballot initiatives over the next few months coming into the midterms, too. Where supposedly the Dems have begun to have the advantage in this very kind of ethereal factor of motivation and who's coming out. All right. Well, what that suggests to me is there's a real disconnect between the voters overall, even in red states, and the very sort of red meat, who can be more severe positions of Republican state political officials and federal officials. So how should Republicans respond? They're never going to outflank the Dems on this, but do they have to try to temporize the image that is obviously out of step with 60% of the country? Yeah, they won't, though. The 12 weeks ended up actually being a really good compromise for most Americans, 12 to 16 weeks being a ban. Then the polling, what Aaron was saying, then the polling does start to shift. But the craziness of no exceptions for rape or incest or having a 10-year-old carry a baby, I keep thinking, like, it's so perverse. It's so sexually perverse. And I think we need to call it that. Like, it is just, it is so disgusting that I just like, instead of saying it's like cruel, it's like, it's like a weird sexual deviation, I think, by many of these Republicans. I agree. I'm so glad you're saying that, Juliet. It's almost like they find it titillating. Yes, I agree. Like, I mean, like, ooh, a 10 year old is having a bad, like, I don't know. That's the sense that I get. There can be no rational reason. I mean, it's just, but it's power. I mean, it's consistent with a notion that the victimized woman is not actually victimized because she's not an equal. So they blew it and they won't solve it because here's the problem with them. And it's good for the Democrats, which is they can't stop. In other words, this federalism thing was a bunch of nothing, right? The idea that they really thought it should go back to the states was now being proved a lie. They don't actually like it. The anti-abortion movement is now moving to a federal ban. That is for the things that I look at, like radicalization, violence, this is the worst scenario because they won and yet they're realizing they didn't win. This is a really bad place to be because these abortion clinics will still be open. Courts are really in favor. So you've got this really toxic arena in which their lie about federalism, let it t- turn to the states, is now being exposed that it turns out like what Aaron was saying, like 60 plus percent of Americans who vote actually uh, don't want it. So I think they're stuck because hours after someone who's likely to run, Vice President Pence, says he wants a federal abortion ban. And that now has become the metric for if you want to win the primary in the Republican Party. All I have to say is game on. Yeah. The dog caught the car. I have to be honest with you. I am not interested in the GOP figuring out how it's going to moderate. They know exactly how to moderate and they miss every opportunity. And so at some stage, you have to just believe they don't want to do it. And to Aaron's point, I hang around 21-year-old girls because that's my daughter's peer group. This is a generation that this is not up for discussion. Let's just put it that way. This is a topic I'd like to discuss for much longer. We can't today, maybe later. Let me just close out here on Juliet's point of, you know, the dog that caught the the train or whatever. The Supreme Court, the tenor of the opinion is finally after this terrible misadventure by the Supreme Court, we're now finally 
settling it, returning it to the orderly democratic process? Are we looking at many years of increasingly bitter battles over abortion, or is this a sort of temporary period as legal regimes settle out in various states and everything's going to be nice and stable in a couple years? I think it's going to be ongoing. And Harry, I'll just quickly comment on this federal lawsuit since I did my federal jurisdiction refresher on preemption. (laughs) (laughs) That was brave. That was above and beyond talking feds duty. Thank you. Yeah. So basically this Idaho lawsuit, the DOJ is basically saying hospitals, providers who take federal funds, Medicare funds, are obligated to comply with a law. I forget exactly the law, but it's a law that guarantees emergency medical care. Yeah. And they're saying that Idaho... It obliges federal... Do- it's an emergency. It's a fuck... <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's effing... I think that's a fair fuck, don't you think? What do you do with F-bombs on live TV, Ms. Burnett? You let them rip, you can't. Then you say sorry later. Okay, right. <laughs> But that Idaho's ban, which, by the way, does have uh, threatening the mother's life exception. I think what the DOJ is saying, there are many situations short of it causing death that can be an emergency that doctors may need to perform this to stabilize a patient. And by banning this, doctors are unable to comply with this federal law. And therefore, there's a preemption issue. Preemption meaning that federal law is the supreme law of the land and they can't comply. I think this is an uphill battle. Oh, interesting. There's kind of a presumption against preemption to begin with. And this kind of preemption, which DOJ is arguing, is called implied preemption. It's not stated Mm. in this emergency medical law. What DOJ is saying is that the Idaho law creates an obstacle or makes it impossible for doctors to comply. And here's the rub, is that when you get to that, you're looking into congressional intent which means that you're often looking extra textually since the preemption isn't mentioned explicitly in the statute. And I'm going to go and point out that we don't have a lot of extra textualists on the court right now, right? They want to look at the text. And so they're going to, you know, I think that you're already starting from this presumption against it unless it's explicitly stated or something like nuclear safety or aviation, which is a clearly federal interest. Yeah. This is not. I mean, states regulate medical care all the time. They regulate doctors at the state level. So that would be my initial impression that I think it's a very creative argument. I think it's the argument that DOJ should be making. But I think there's a hook, right? Because you do have federal funds here. And I don't know why they can't follow the South Dakota versus Dole model which is, you know, hooking federal funds to states creating certain kinds of laws or exceptions or minimum standards to get that funding. That's another avenue. As you said, Harry, it's a spending clause. It's not a preemption clause. But that would be up to Congress. That's not something the DOJ can litigate. DOJ is litigating what it can. So I think it's an uphill battle. I think you're right, is it's a stretch. But it does show the DOJ really in earnest about trying to do stuff. And and the broader point that the notion that everything's going to settle down now and there's not going to be increasingly pitched battles is, I think, chimerical. All right. Out of time, man. On all three of these topics, I wish we could go two more hours. We just have a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today's is, what is the next excuse that executive branch officials will offer for the deletion of text messages related to January 6th? Five words or fewer. Anybody, everybody. Oh, wait, I got one. 
Hillary Clinton did it. Oh, you're <laughs> talking to me. <laughs> I have one, but you have to consider the acronym as one word. Otherwise, I, I fail. I see why am I colon. Yeah, one word. You did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, if you're listening at home, write that out. It'll go. All right, <laughs> oh. All right here's mine. Phones fell in porta potties. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I just can't give up my two great minds. I'm going with Hillary Clinton's dog ate it. <laughs> All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Aaron, Juliet, and Asha. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we'll be posting full episodes, our special Talking Books discussions with authors, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post in-depth discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com contact, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to star of stage, screen, and TV, Jeff Perry, for explaining international sanctions under U.S. law. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.